The strategic blueprint the Continental Congress came up with for the defense of New York in 1776 was, wait for it, Bunker Hill. I hate to cast aspersion on the military acumen of a gathering of lawyers, a doctor or two, land speculators, bankers, ministers, and a wily printing magnet and almanac author, but they were way off base on this one. I mean, they didn't even have the name of the battle right. Bunker Hill was the one on the left. The fighting actually took place on Breed's Hill. The Continentals were awash in confusion as the British attack got underway at Bunker, I mean Breed's Hill, but managed to put up some fortifications and get some snipers in place. The English lost more casualties there than in any other single battle in the Revolution, including a hundred commissioned officers. British General Henry Clinton wrote in his diary that a few more such victories would have shortly put an end to British dominion in America. This, and the fairly well-organized retreat of the Continental Army, were the highlights of the Battle of Bunker, I mean Breed's Hill. The Congress got hung up on the tremendous cost to the British and trained and experienced officers and the slaughter of English troops in general. Defeat was okay, apparently, as long as you took more of the enemy with you. General Charles Lee and his dogs back in New York to help manage the defense of the city thought this was a terrible plan. He argued for a retreat into Connecticut, where the British would have a hard time following, especially in winter, and live to fight another day. Perhaps a warmer day. And, being classically trained, he knew that battles were most often won by the army that got to choose the time and place of the fighting, which in this case was not the Continentals. The British had driven the Continentals back in the Battle of Brooklyn in August and the subsequent battles of White Plains and Harlem Heights. Most of Manhattan had been lost to the British before Charles got there. These losses on Washington's part confirmed for Charles that he was the military brains of the Continental Army and Washington is a mere political appointee. At this early stage of the war, George Washington, who was busy reading books on military strategy he had bought on his way north from Mount Vernon to take command, felt self-conscious about his own shortcomings, considering Lee's wide military experience. Washington convened his staff on October 16th to discuss a retreat from Manhattan. For my part, Charles said, I would have nothing to do with the islands, Long Island and Manhattan, to which you have been clinging so perniciously. It's worth pointing out that Charles's own strategy when he had been placed in charge of the defense of New York earlier in the year was the bunker, I mean Breed's Hill Gambit. He knew the Continentals couldn't hold New York and that it was a major strategic goal for the British who viewed the capture of the city as the key to a quick end to the rebellion, which meant the British would throw everything they had at it. If the Continentals, as they had done at that hill whose name escapes me right now, managed to take out nine-tenths of the British forces there too, New York would be a Pyrrhic victory that would do more harm than good to the enemy. But by the fall, it was clear that the British expected heavy losses and had sent enough men and material to compensate, like 32,000 troops and 450 warships. They had men and supplies to burn. So New York had to be abandoned if the revolution was going to survive. Washington agreed to send part of the army to White Plains, which prevented the British from encircling their enemy as Charles had predicted they would try to do. But Washington left a significant force and a lot of critical supplies at Fort Washington, which was overrun on November 17th, costing the Continentals nearly 3,000 men. Fort Lee on the New Jersey side was next, where the British didn't capture nearly as many men, but still got lots of supplies. Washington divided his army, leaving Charles in command of the largest detachment of 7,000 men. He was going to keep the army split up, 
reserving a force of 2,500 men for himself that he dubbed his flying army that would remain mobile until the enemy's plans became clear. He told Lee that if the British invaded New Jersey, that Charles's troops should meet up with his and recombine the army. Charles thought this was a wrong move, along with the idea of trying to hold Fort Washington. The commander-in-chief allowed himself to be persuaded to defend the fort by General Nathaniel Green. When the fort was overrun, Charles flew into a rage. He wrote Washington, Why would you be over-persuaded by men of inferior judgment to your own? It was a cursed affair. As we learned in previous episodes, Charles had no trouble criticizing commanders that he thought were incompetent and calling out their blunders. Some Continental officers picked up on this, and grumblings about replacing Washington with Lee started to make the rounds. Would to heaven General Lee were here, one colonel wrote. An aide to General Horatio Gates wrote that the fall of Fort Washington enhanced Lee's reputation. The fall of Fort Lee only helped Charles's stature at Washington's expense. Charles thought the Patriot cause would be lost if it was left in Washington's hands. He believed he could do better. Charles received a packet of letters from headquarters on November 21st. One was from Washington, advising but not ordering Charles to cross into New Jersey. The other was from Joseph Reed, Washington's adjutant. Reed's letters suggested that Washington's staff had lost faith in their commander, seeing him as indecisive. Reed told Charles, I do think it is entirely owing to you that this army and the liberties of America are not totally cut off. You have decision, a quality often wanting in minds otherwise valuable. In case it's not clear, when he said minds otherwise valuable, Reed meant George Washington. Saying that an indecisive mind is one of the great misfortunes that can befall an army, Reed advised Charles, as soon as the season will admit, I think yourself and some others should go to Congress and form the plan of the new army. New army? Hold on a minute. That doesn't sound like great news for General George Washington. It is at this point that Charles Lee began to scheme to replace Washington as head of the Continental Army. He insisted on retaining an independent command and not joining up with the rest of Washington's forces, which he felt would likely be wiped out soon. If so, it would leave him with the largest Continental Army left in the field, which would lead logically to the decision to put him in charge of the whole war effort. He wrote to the president of the Massachusetts Council, criticizing indecision in our military councils and saying that the recent Continental losses needed to be remedied by a contrary spirit. If you're keeping score, Washington was indecisive, and Lee, as we have seen, was plenty contrary. So the remedy he spoke of was him. The president of the council didn't help Charles out, saying, with pain we read the disasters that have befallen us, yet we are not dispirited. Charles wrote Washington, saying that his army was unable to march because of bad shoes, no blankets, and bad weather. There was also a brigade of scary British troops in the area. Lee hoped that Washington would accept at least one of these excuses. Charles also sent a reply back to Joseph Reed's disloyal letter of the 21st. He said that indecision of mind in war is a much greater disqualification than stupidity or even want of personal courage. He said it was not immediately setting out to join his army up with Washington's. This letter reached headquarters on a day when Joseph Reed was off somewhere else, so it was George Washington who opened the mail and saw what Charles had written, and that it was clearly in response to similar sentiments expressed by his own aide. He did not tell Reed or Lee that he had read it. Treasonous Correspondence Safety Tip, number 257. 
make sure your letters don't end up in the wrong hands. Washington sent a letter back to Lee, expressing his desperate need for Charles to bring his troops to reinforce him. Charles delayed six days before setting out and took five days to reach the headquarters of General William Heath at Peekskill, New York. He ordered Heath to give him 2,000 of his troops, but Heath said he had been ordered by Washington to protect the Hudson Highlands. Charles told him, The commander-in-chief is now at a distance and does not know what is necessary here so well as I do. And, to be clear, he added, I command on this side of the water. I must and will be obeyed. But he didn't think he needed to obey his own commander. Charles received an impatient message from Washington. My former letters were so full and explicit as to the necessity of you marching as soon as possible that it is unnecessary to add more, Washington wrote. I expected that you would have been sooner in motion. Charles wrote back on November 30th, offering to explain his reasons for delaying when the two met in person and that he was preparing to cross the Hudson the day after tomorrow. He actually crossed the Hudson on December 2nd, with the last of his troops making it across on the 4th. In the meantime, George Washington and the remnant of the Continental Army was on the run from General Cornwallis, evading the British for 170 miles. By the time they reached New Brunswick, they had 3,000 men left, and they were only saved by British General Howe ordering Cornwallis not to pursue them. Washington's small army was all that stood between the British and Philadelphia. It was a fairly classic strategy. The British believed that taking the American capital, in addition to their recent conquest of New York, would spell the end of the military phase of the war. All that would remain would be some mopping up and sending shipments of rebel leaders to London for trial and hanging. Washington wrote Lee that, The force I have with me is infinitely inferior in number, and such as cannot give or promise the least successful opposition to the British plan to take the capital. He said, I must entreat you to hasten your march as much as possible, or your arrival may be too late to answer any valuable purpose. Flowery 18th century prose aside, the message was pretty clear. If you don't get here soon, all is lost. Charles Lee was on a razor's edge. His gambit of keeping his army intact and separate from Washington's, delaying his march, seems to have been aimed at surviving what he saw as Washington's inevitable defeat, then taking the field as the Continental Commander-in-Chief himself. Charles wrote to his allies in the Congress saying, I foresaw, predicted all that has happened regarding the defeat in New York, and asked one delegate, Benjamin Rush, to acquit me of any share of the misfortune in your conversations with other delegates. Flowery 18th century prose aside, the message was pretty clear. I told you so about New York, and when you all get together and talk about it, don't blame me. But he had stalled too long. The Continental Congress, with the whole British Army aimed at them, ordered Washington to send a rider to find Lee and determine his situation. This rider, Lieutenant Colonel Walter Stewart, found Lee on December 4th, delivering a tense letter from Washington. But instead of realizing that the jig was up, Charles argued to retain his independent command so that he could strike at the British from the rear. General Howe ordered his main force to march on Philadelphia. Washington kept his army on the move, retreating across the Delaware, but now the British army was 30 miles from Philadelphia. I tremble for Philadelphia, Washington wrote. Nothing in my opinion but General Lee's speedy arrival, who has long been expected, though still at a distance, can save it. He wrote to John Hancock, President of the Continental Congress, I cannot account for the slowness of his march. 
Charles made it to Morristown, New Jersey, where he discovered another officer who had been dispatched by Washington to find him and get him moving in the right direction. This officer, Colonel Richard Humpton, informed Charles that Washington had been reinforced by a thousand Pennsylvania militiamen. Charles jumped on that, writing back to Washington that now that his army was back up to strength, Charles's forces were best used in attacking the enemy's rear. So, if you've been keeping up with what makes for a good historical train wreck, failure to accurately assess the situation you find yourself in is pretty high on the list, which is what Charles Lee was doing right now. Regardless of what strategy he thought best, which in this case might have been biased in favor of his own advancement, a giant British army was within 30 miles of taking out Charles's bosses and sending them off to England for a show trial and some neck stretching. They believed the Congress and the cause was out of time. And, as Charles had always wanted, they saw him as their salvation. All he had to do was show up and save them. Charles reached the town of Chatham on December 8th and checked himself and his dogs into the best tavern in town, where he encountered Major Robert Hoops, yet another officer sent on a fast horse to find the missing general. Hoops told Lee that there were boats waiting at Alexandria, New Jersey, to ferry him and his army over to Pennsylvania to, you know, stop the British. Washington had written John Hancock that once Hoops had told Lee of the desperate state of things, that he would be convinced of the necessity of proceeding this way with all the force he can bring. One could only hope. Except, Lee disagreed with his commanders, and the Congresses, and pretty much everyone else's assessment. I cannot persuade myself that Philadelphia is their object at present, he said in a letter to Washington, offering once more to attack the British rear. When this letter reached headquarters, Nathaniel Green told his boss, I think General Lee must be confined with the lines of some general plan, or else his operations will be independent of yours. In short, stop asking Lee for help. Order him to get moving. Washington did, kind of, on December 10th. When my situation is directly opposite to what you suppose it to be, and when General Howe is pressing forward with the whole of his army to possess himself of Philadelphia, I cannot but request and entreat you, and this too by the advice of all the general officers with me, to march and join me with your whole force, with all possible expedition. Flowery 18th century prose aside, the message was pretty clear. We all think you need to get moving, Charles, right now. Washington, after receiving Charles's letter informing him that Philadelphia wasn't really Howe's target, sent a fourth officer on the road to see Charles with a short message. You know the importance of the city of Philadelphia and the fatal consequences that must attend the loss of it. Charles saw George Washington as a mere political appointee, but political considerations were paramount at this stage of the war. The rest of colonial America was on the fence about independence and revolution. The latest string of losses wasn't winning them over to the cause. If the American capital fell, even if Congress escaped, most reasonable colonists would see the whole enterprise as lost. Charles was ultimately proven right when General Howe called off the attack on Philadelphia for the winter, but military strategy was only part of American success. They had to be seen to be winning in order to get colonists on their side, or at least keep the army in the field as an effective fighting force. The political appointee knew this. The military strategist couldn't care less. In early December 1776, it seemed like both Washington and Lee, who realized their time was running out, were planning their own separate bold attacks on the British. 
Charles was contemplating an assault on Princeton, and George had this crazy idea to cross a frozen river in the middle of the night and wreak some yuletide havoc on some Hessian mercenaries. One clear indication that Charles was planning something dangerous was that he sent his dogs away to stay somewhere else. For a guy who was never more than a few feet away from his pets, this was a big deal and meant something. Charles replied to Washington's latest message with an offer to remain in New Jersey and maybe attack Princeton. Or definitely. But if the commanding general really wanted Charles to cross the river, it would take at least another two days due to his army's lack of shoes, or blankets, or boats, or something. The Continental Congress fled Philadelphia to Baltimore, with some of the delegates encouraged by General Lee's presence in New Jersey, believing that he was on the march toward the enemy. Another delegate wrote that the chief hope that remained was that General Lee, who was in the mountains in the rear of the enemy, would be able to effect some lucky stroke that would prevent the enemies crossing the Delaware. Without that, the delegate went on, Congress would be obliged to authorize the commander-in-chief to obtain the best terms that he could from the enemy. Which sounds a lot like surrender. Charles Lee had worked hard to get Congress on his side. And even now, running for their lives and contemplating military surrender, some of them still believed he would swoop in and save them. But he was at a tavern. Charles ordered his highest-ranking general, John Sullivan, to depart with his army to join Washington on December 12th. Charles followed at a distance. He spent the night at Widow White's Tavern in a town called Basking Ridge, three miles away from Sullivan's army, with only a few aides. The next morning, he received Major James Wilkinson, who brought him up to date on events in northern New York. Charles, in a foul mood, had nothing but bad things to say about Washington's army. He listed off all the bad decisions Washington had made and took credit for keeping the army from being captured at Manhattan. Charles composed a letter to Horatio Gates, saying that a certain great man, and we all know who he meant, is most damnably deficient. He said that Washington had finally put him in a tight spot, where his choices were to stay in New Jersey and risk his army, or leave and cede the colony to the enemy. He said, in short, Unless something which I do not expect turns up, we are lost. Then, something Charles Lee did not expect actually turned up. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider giving us a good rating on Apple Podcasts and whatever platform you listen on, as well as supporting the show on our Patreon page. There's lots of fun bonus content over there, like how to talk to your pets about history, early access to new episodes, and some free bonus episodes that don't quite fit with our main narrative. It's also a great way to keep the show going. $3 a month or so goes a long way toward keeping the train wrecks on the tracks, and your support means a lot. Go to patreon.com forward slash history's train wrecks, and thank you so much for your support. If you have your own ideas about how to persuade your insubordinate subordinates to quit stalling and do what you tell them, or think that Charles Lee should have been more careful about marking his disloyal correspondence private, you can Twitter to add history's train. You can Instagram whatever that is, to History's Trainwrecks. If there's a historical train wreck you'd love to see on the tracks, join the History's Trainwrecks Facebook group. And as always, tell every history nerd you know about us. We definitely need to stick together. On our next episode, we find British General Charles Cornwallis deeply worried about an American general and what to do about him. But the general keeping him up at night is not George Washington. So General Cornwallis orders some old friends of Charles from the British service to go find him and see what he's up to.
which they do. The 16th Regiment of British Light Dragoons, which Charles had commanded in Portugal in 1762, find their old boss holed up in a tavern, with no one guarding him against the possibility of capture. So they capture him. Stay tuned for The Men Who Would Be Washington, Part 7. There was a time when we used to travel the open road and pull into a highway diner and meet fascinating people, hear incredible stories, and learn about new ideas. Now I was taught at a young age that you should always sit at the counter. Not only did you meet the most interesting people, but you also got the best service and hottest coffee. Now the open highway brings that concept, not the coffee, the other stuff, to a weekly podcast. Interviews, current events, news, odd stories, and more. I'm your host, Eric Erickson. I'm an author, writer, and journalist, and I've had incredible adventures. And I bring all of those experiences to the show. I know a little bit about everything, and it's just enough to get me into trouble. So join me for The Open Highway, available wherever you find your favorite podcasts.